This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. Two thousand and eleven has been a crazy year, money-wise. Many big firms made substantial profits in the past twelve months, but many big firm clients still maintain that young lawyers are paid too much money. That being said, what will year-end associate bonuses look like, and what sort of things are playing into management's decisions about how much they'll give? I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and that's what we're discussing today at the ABA Journal podcast. Joining me is Bruce McEwen, president of Adam Smith Esquire. The consulting group focuses on law firm business and economic issues. So, Bruce, let's get straight to what many people want to know. What are Wall Street law firms going to be paying for associate bonuses this year? Also, how do you think they reached their decision on that number? I think that probably the median of the range, of course, it's going to be the, the smallest for first years and the most for, you know, seventh, eighth years, but I think the the median of the range will probably be in the twenty to twenty-five thousand dollar range at, at Wall Street firms. It could be higher. I'd be very surprised if it's if it's less than that. Why do you think that? That's kind of a little bit below the going rate of recent years, and obviously we're in, still in an extremely challenging economy. But I think for firms to heaven forfend, <laughs> eliminate bonuses or substantially cut them back would be seen by the market as a sign of weakness. Even a $10,000 bonus would be viewed as, you know, the functional equivalent of zero. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And when you say the market, you mean other law firms, right? You don't mean clients? Well, uh, you know, clients, it's funny. Clients are probably the constituency with the least voice in all of this, or the, the voice that's least listened to in any event. But the people that, that uh, firms are playing to, their audience, if you will, are primarily lateral associates and to some extent their own partners because uh, we are, as you know, an extremely prestige-driven Mm-hmm. industry, irrationally so in my view, but that's a topic for another day. And and partners want to know and lateral associates want to be attracted to firms that seem to be uh, on top of the game, on top of the market. Well, I'm intrigued now because I, I certainly agree with you, is the profession is very image conscious. Say someone that was respected in, this, in the community said, you know what, we're giving bonuses worth ten grand this year. What would happen? I suspect that some managing partners might kind of like that. They just wouldn't have the nerve to do it first. I think many managing partners would like that, and I've had a bunch of conversations off the record. You know, when the when the spring bonus round erupted last year, uh-huh. if you recall, uh-huh. the view behind closed doors was almost universal that this was insane. But, of course, nobody nobody could say that, even though everybody believed it. You know, this brings me, and I think you were going there, this brings me to another aspect of our industry, which I continue to find fascinating. You asked a second ago, what if one firm did something different, you know, paid ten grand because it's a it's a lousy economy, and you know a lot of people <laughs> you know walk downstairs, go out on the sidewalk, ask 
you know, a dozen people at random if a $10,000 bonus would be nice. And I guarantee you all 12 of them are going to say that would be great Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this economy. But we are sheep as an industry. And it's extremely hard for any firm to depart from the pack, even if it's the most sensible business thing to do. So from a funny perspective, I find the whole concept of associate bonuses confirmation that law firms are not yet run like businesses. Do you get the sense, are most firms still doing the lockstep bonuses for associates, or have some changed it? There's a little bit of change, but it's only at the margins. And Does I, that tie into what you just said, is people are afraid to change? They're afraid to change, yeah. yeah. And everybody, mostly everybody's afraid to be different. Everybody's afraid to fall out of step with the industry. One of the interesting things that I think is going on and I don't know if this is the economy where we'll see this happen, but one of the things that started to happen before the Great Recession was, for example, this, I saw this most clearly in the rise of starting salaries to 160, you know, in New York and major markets. The elite firms, I think, were driving a stake in the ground, saying we're going to make it tougher for wannabe firms <laughs> to, f- to follow. Mm-hmm. And, and they succeeded. We're gonna, we're, yeah, we're, we're going to 160 because we can. Right. You know? And if you want to suck it up and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and follow us, you know, be my guest. We might see something similar in bonuses in this environment. Well, would you see a crash and burn, though? Like when they stuck that stake in the ground before and upped, upped it to 160, and then the ones who couldn't quite keep up laid off people in droves the next year. I mean, but it, it, do you think it would come to that? Is it going to be that hard for people to meet this 20 to 25K bonus? I don't think the situation is that dire as it was uh-huh. a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, no. And then, you know, we had, we had, you know, two classes of law students piling up on top of each other and things like that. That was as bad as I've ever seen it in my career. But I certainly think that this is a this is a ratchet, you know. This only goes one way. It only mm-hmm. goes up. And I think that the pressure on some of the non-elite firms uh, is going to begin to see some of them sort of falling by the wayside. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that leads to my next question. Let's say your prediction is right and the Wall Street firms go with twenty to $25,000 bonuses. How are big firms headquartered in other parts of that country going to follow, do you think? That's an interesting question. I mean, th- this is again, one of the things that confounds me a little bit about our industry is that there has been a increasing attempt to view New York as the standard setter, the standard bearer for the national market. So when, you know, New York went to 160, it used to be that, you know, say D.C. would be at 145, you know, mm-hmm. and, and places like Atlanta and Dallas would be, you know, maybe at 110, which is probably a rough and ready approximation of the cost of living so that you could say, 
you know, see your pants way that everybody was kind of being paid the same in terms of purchasing power. But what happened, of course, right before the Great Recession was the New York standard 160, let's say, became the standard in D.C. and Boston and L.A. and San Francisco and then you know, Atlanta and and Chicago and Dallas and Houston and I'm and places where frankly it was more money and it really began to put pressure on some of the firms that have not traditionally been New York powerhouses because they had so many lawyers outside New York expecting one sixty. Mhm. Okay. And I'm curious, too, with your estimate of the twenty to 25000 do you think that includes the firm management's estimate about what clients will find acceptable? Or is it just clients like to talk about paying associates too much, but they never actually do anything with their actions? It's more they just talk about it. No, I think you've, you've put your finger on something. I think a few years ago, managing partners, firm leadership may have paid lip service to what clients thought, but... I don't think they really cared. Their their audience was really other firms and their own, you know, current and future associates. But I do think managing partners have gotten religion now about paying attention to clients. For one thing, clients are not bluffing anymore about what associates earn. They used to complain and to the extent that they had a point, the only point they had, frankly, from an economic perspective was the more law firms paid, the more they presumably had to pay people to come over to go in-house. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was a valid economic point. But the other point that you know law firms just didn't know how to re- reward their own associates is, is nonsense. You know, I don't, if I'm going to buy a BMW, I don't care what it pays the assembly line workers, do I? That's, that's their problem, not mine. Right. Now, a few years ago, uh, most big firms felt like they needed to pay associates large salaries and bonuses to attract the top talent. Given the lessons that the profession has learned over this Great Recession, as well as the lesson, unfortunately, that poor law students have learned, uh, is there still a feeling today, you think, that the firms need to keep up with the bonuses and the salaries to attract and keep good young lawyers from the right schools? Sure, of course. Uh-huh. You want the, the best and the brightest. Right. Everybody from Harvard Law Review. I think we have two funny things going on here. I mean, the the short answer to your question is yes. I think firms still feel incredible pressure to pay the quote-unquote going rate to make sure they get their fair share of the best and brightest. But you, you might ask yourself, you know, why is that? And that's that's where I want to step back for a second. I mean, imagine the kind of graduate employment market that exists in almost every other industry. And that's a market where there's a there's a kind of a curve um, for demand. Um, and basically, graduates face in those other markets, they face a trade-off between compensation and training. And by that, I simply mean that there are firms in those other markets, and I'm thinking, you know, consulting, investment banking, advertising, marketing, publishing. There are firms in those markets that pay pretty poorly, 
but offer terrific training. And there are other firms in the same markets that pay very well but treat you poorly. And that seems to be a stable market in every other industry but ours. And if you think about it, it's logical from the graduate's point of view. Do I want to sacrifice you know, my take-home compensation but get great training, or do I want to make all the money I can and I'll worry about the future later? I certainly know which one of those options I would pick, but that's not an option that exists in our industry. Mm-hmm. Your only option is to get paid very well and, frankly, not be treated very well. There's one other thing going on here. We talk about, you know, you mentioned lockstep bonuses, and we've talked about how firms feel compelled to match the going rate and everything. This, to me, is part of the problem that we just touched upon, where there's one and only one going rate. And that's that I think firms, by matching each other, are delivering the message to associates that we view you all as fungible because Mm -hmm. we're going to pay you all the same amount of money. And therefore, you know, you hear firms saying, well, why couldn't we go to 145? You know, we'd still get great students. I mean, that's a lot of money, you know. The answer is no, it's not going to work that way because – to the students, they have no real way of differentiating among firms. Let's face it, they they just don't know that much about firms when they graduate. So to them, the difference between 145 and 160 is a highly material difference. Hmm. If they can get an offer from the firm at 160, they're going to take it. It's interesting because it's, I mean, it's less than $20,000. You might have a great experience somewhere else, but be making 145. Yeah. Huh. Well, you know, I would certainly, you know, if I if I had started <laughs> after graduate school in a different industry, I would certainly have opted for the segment of the market that trained you very well and will worry about total comp later. That's making an investment in your career, but firms are saying, "No, you're all fungible." Do you think these bonuses, are they the best way to reward associates? And do you think that bonus systems create better workers? No. Why not? No no, and no. You know, I, I may be old-fashioned, but I'm, I'm a capitalist at heart, and I believe in meritocracies. And a lockstep compensation system, I don't care if it's, 90% salary and 10% bonus or 50% salary and 50% bonus as long as it's lockstep for everybody and there is really no merit involved it's not a way to motivate employees or to really you know generate people who want to get training and want to get better and better at what they do it doesn't matter within you know within the bounds of of you know competence and and legality, presumably it doesn't matter how you perform. When you talk about that idea with clients, can you share with me what the reaction tends to be? Clients find it preposterous the way we compensate associates. They simply do not understand 
how a compensation system can be divorced from performance factors. And by performance factors, I should hasten to add, I don't mean billable hours. You can, I think you can have, well, I know because I've seen these people in action and I've worked with them. You can have somebody who bills 1,800 hours a year who's really an excellent lawyer and somebody who bills 2,200 who's just putting in the time and punching the clock, as it were. Okay. So I want to make sure I understand you correctly. I know there has been a lot of talk about changing things with the firms about how to compensate associates and that from client calls, but you're saying that it's more talk and nothing has actually become action for the most part? The only way we'll know that it's more than talk is when a firm begins to depart from the lockstep market. That's the only thing, in my opinion, that will say there's actually change afoot. Do you have any sense of, say, how many big firms have departed from the lockstep bonus system? Well, for for public announcement purposes, almost none have mm-hmm. departed from it. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the question is, you know, there's there's the public announcement, and then there's, you know, what else is going on, really. And we saw a little bit of this disconnect in the Great Recession when, as you alluded to earlier, uh, a lot of firms were forced to resort to, you know, historically unprecedented layoffs. And a lot of firms uh, tried to somewhat cosmetically put a different face on that by saying that some of the layoffs were performance-related and not uh, economically driven. And I think that unless we had a whole couple of years of law students who were far inferior to their predecessors, <laughs> that that's probably not exactly the case. Um, so it's uh, you know what what firms say is one thing and what they actually do is another, but you don't hear anybody say they're departing from lockstep. Well, have you had a chance to speak with many of the associates about what they think about bonuses and what do you think they would prefer? Do they like these lockstep bonuses or maybe they prefer something else as well? You know, law students and associates are. Well, they're, you know, they're lawyers in the making, and they are extremely risk-averse. I, I find this odd just on a personal level because I'm I'm not, <laughs> but it's true. And mm-hmm. you're kidding yourself if you think it's otherwise. So I think they prefer, in a way, the certainty of, of lockstep. Um, mm-hmm. You would think, I mean, I certainly grew up thinking that, you know, anything that was a race to the top, I was going to do fine, thank you. Mm-hmm. But that's not the way the majority of, of students and associates think, that I've spoken to think. They would rather make sure that, that they've got the bird in the hand, if you will. I would think ones who are entrepreneurial in nature would prefer it the other way, but I don't know how long those types are going to stick around the big firms for the most part. That if you've put your finger on it. If you do have an entrepreneurial bent, I think you will find that there aren't too many people like you in big law, and you will 
you'll either lose your entrepreneurial bent or or you'll leave. And frankly, we need a lot of entrepreneurs in the country right now. So I'm hoping most of those people leave. Well, you mentioned the spring bonuses earlier. Do you think we'll see them again in 2012? You know, I hope not because I think they were fundamentally irrational. But on the other hand, that's never stopped law firms before. <laughs> <laughs> well, will these bonuses, will they be an indicator of 2012 salaries? And if so, how? You know, that's a, that's actually an interesting question. I'm, um, as you may have gathered, I'm a big believer in a relatively high component of variable or discretionary pay and a relatively smaller component of fixed pay. So I would hope that the 160, you know, salary structure stays in place for several more years and that an increasing component of of overall compensation is is in the form of bonuses actually based on performance you know the the performance of the firm obviously overall its economic health but also the performance of the individual that particular year or over a you know rolling period of a few years okay well bruce i think that's everything i have for you did you want to add anything else no, the only uh, the only other thing I, I think I'd like to to leave your your listeners with is the thought that if if we stood back and imagined this same compensation structure in almost any other industry, we would think that it was bizarrely managed. And the reason that law firms can do it is. They're competing with other law firms, mm-hmm. <laughs> and as long as uh, as long as that's the case, there is no compelling reason to change. And and lawyers, if given the option, um, would prefer not to change. So I think this is going to be with us for quite some time until law firms may maybe see competition from non-law firms. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.